electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Melissa. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. We'll continue to follow shares of Deutsche Bank this hour, dropping as much as 10% here in the U.S. after the cost of insuring against its default has been on the rise. All that, of course, after the collapse of Credit Suisse and another round of Fed rate hikes. But look at the markets largely shrugging it off. The Dow's up 20. The S&P's up 1 to 39.49. The Dow, S&P, and Nasdaq all hanging on to weekly gains, although the Nasdaq is in the red by a third of a percent today. And the Dow is trying to snap a two-week losing streak. The S&P and Nasdaq going for a third positive week in four. You might say, what banking crisis? But perhaps their outperformance is reflective of yields sinking to the lowest since last September. That's the case for the 10-year and the two-year today. Look at those levels for the 10-year, 337. In fact, the KRE Regional Bank ETF higher as well. First Republic in the green today. At least it was. Look at that. It's actually given up its gains. It's now down by about 1%. That's an area to keep an eye on in the next couple of hours. Now, St. Louis Fed Chair James Bullard, a non-voting Fed member this year, just said the contagion risk is overblown. He raised how high he thinks the Fed needs to hike rates this year to about five and three quarters percent. While at the same time, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is calling a meeting with the Financial Stability Oversight Council today. Financial conditions clearly tightening in response to all of this, no matter what happens to the banks from here. We're going to look at the fallout across autos, energy and crypto, which is also in Washington's crosshairs for other reasons right now. But let's begin with whether it's the right call for global central banks to keep hiking interest rates. Joining me for that, Barry Knapp is with Ironside's Macro. He's here with me on set. Welcome to you, Barry. Jillian, Jillian, we never like to see you because it always means there's big problems. In the glo- <laughs> this, there should be a Jillian Tet indicator. Uh, it, it's lovely for you to join us today. I know it's getting late there, so we, we do appreciate it as well. Uh, and our very own Steve Leesman, of course, as well, to round things out. Barry, let me just start with you because you're kind of more clearly in the, the camp that the Fed just made a policy error here. Right. Um, yeah, I think we found out what our starred, the celestial star for the <laughs> banking system is. And in essence, we hit that level in September when the Fed's remittances to the Treasury after 13 years ended. In other words, the Fed's portfolio started to carry negatively where the cost that they were paying out in the overnight rate and reserves was higher than the yield they were getting on their portfolio. Well, if we go back to 2021 and we think about what occurred, the Fed bought a trillion dollars worth of treasuries. Well, guess what? So did the commercial banking system. Yeah. The Fed bought a trillion or a half a trillion dollars worth of mortgage-backed securities. So did the banking system. So as the banking system reached this point, and you and I discussed this before the entire tightening process started, I was urging them to tighten similarly to how they eased, meaning right. Much more active more early. Um, QE or QT, excuse me, and more passive rate hikes so that they didn't deeply invert the curve, destroy what they call maturity transformation or the basic business. Although it's not clear model. that they could even do that much of QT because is it just a coincidence that when they did it in 2019, we saw the repo crisis, they try to do it in 2023, we see banking problems. I mean, it's not that might be as pernicious in some ways as all the hikes. It, it might have been. I mean, you know, the, the Fed has a lot of experience in buying and not very much in, in selling. 
But I do think at the time, you know, if you think about where rates were, what the appetite for treasuries was, there was very little bank lending in the system. They probably could have been much more active in their QT than they were. But that notwithstanding, the bottom line here is that we reached the breaking point yeah. in terms of policy for what the banking system can withstand. And yet they kept going, and, and you think that's a mistake. That is absolutely a mistake. And then I'll add another related and important point that we're witnessing right now, which is the implicit guarantee does not work. Hmm. And it doesn't work for the same reason if you go back to 2008 and really think about what the sequence of events within sort of a Hayek rule of law framework, right? So Washington Mutual goes down, there's money at the hold company, but not at the bank. So hold company debt um, resolves at a higher price than the bank and nothing illegal or untoward was done. But then the Fed takes over Fannie and Freddie and decides which parts of the capital structure win and lose. Um, certainly the decision to not bail out Lehman, but then the auto bailouts where uh, union creditors through the health care plan got higher payouts than did <clears throat> the, um, the bondholders. It made the whole really? capital structure uninvestable. So consider that, that context now. Sure, Silicon Valley got a bailout, and the next few banks are likely to get a bailout, or not bailout of the shareholders, but you know they, they covered the non-insured deposits. But what about a crypto firm? Well, we already found out what happened there. What if a big Texas bank goes down? What would the political pressure be there? So they need so, to spell it so out more. The, well, they can't spell it out. It has to be a blanket guarantee, which would require an act, act of Congress, mm -hmm. because my assertion here is that you can't have three policymakers decide right. who lives or dies. Right. That's how we went down. Hank Paulson wanted us gone. Yeah, us needed, being Lehman back, for people sorry, who forget. Sorry, yeah, yes. Lehman, <laughs> managing director yeah. there. And, and ultimately, it was a political decision. Let me, Jillian, I, want to bring, and I wanted to start with Barry so people don't get too obsessed with Deutsche Bank, right? Because you and Steve <laughs> and, and Barry and I all know this isn't really about Deutsche Bank. It's sort of about Credit Suisse, and, and it will be about others, but it's, it's all about the contagion risk. Uh, I, at least that's how I see it. Maybe you see it differently. Well... Um, are you asking about the contagion rates? I'm actually, as it happens, sitting in London right now. I'm normally based in New York. And I can tell you the mood in London is pretty nervous right now, given this extraordinary swing in the credit default swap pricing for Deutsche Bank and, of course, the share price, too. And when you get the premier of a country coming out on a Friday afternoon and saying, everything's fine, don't panic, you can guarantee that that's going to cause people to get very, very nervous indeed. Friday afternoons are a pretty grisly moment for banks when there is a banking crisis going on. So, you know, certainly people are watching Deutsche very closely. There is a level of bafflement amongst people I've been speaking to about why Deutsche Bank has moved so far, so fast in the credit default swap market in the last 48 hours. Um, there aren't obvious new bits of news. And the CDS market is, of course, very illiquid. So it's possible that there's something causing this overreaction. But the level of nerves is very high. And I'll just simply say, I strongly disagree with Barry in terms of what the Fed should have done, because the reason we are in this mess right now is because there have been 10, 12 years of massive policy mistakes about far too much quantitative easing, far too much you know, free money. And essentially, the system has been riddled with moral hazard and the assumption that there is a Fed put. That is why you now have the financial system essentially based around a one-way bet that interest will stay low forever. 
It is insane that people at SVP, for example, were essentially betting the house on interest rates coming back down quickly. There were other banks that were not, like M&T. Um, there were plenty of other smart people who could see which way the future was going. But the Fed itself and the other central banks encouraged this complacency for years. And I would say that if it's perceived to have yet another Fed put underpinning the system, right. if the Fed links, given the inflation numbers, and didn't act on the um, hiking rates, then you're simply going to replay the whole cycle. And if people like Barry are worried about the health of banks, then frankly, the FDIC should just extend deposit insurance temporarily and ask Congress for permission to do it right now. Steve, I, let's kind of zero in on the balance sheet a little bit. What did we just learn about what's happening there? I just want to maybe engage Julia on this idea that somehow what's happening right now is the inevitable result of a morality play that has to do with keeping rates low for so long. I, I guess I'm just not sure that's the case. And I think that one of the things that's happened is you have this situation where Perhaps this time around, in the wake of the pandemic, the Fed kept rates too low for too long, engaged QE. But that doesn't go back and change what happened previously when the Fed kept rates low and inflation was below target for a long period of time. I just feel like there's a little bit of this idea of, oh, this is what happens when you you know, mess with mother nature. I'm not sure that's the case. You could have this same situation if rates went from five to 10% as they went from zero to 5%. Um, and, and by the way, on the rate hike thing, uh, Kelly, I'm not sure it matters because there are times that the market and the Fed walk arm in arm and they see something coming and they move together. And there's times when the Fed may go down a certain road and the other guy says, you can go there, but I'm not going with you. If you look at what's happened to the Fed funds market today, we have this Fed market gap up there, which is quite extraordinary. Wow. It was a, it's 120 basis points separate where the Fed is priced or has forecast it's going to go year end. And the market is 120 basis points lower than that right now in its pricing. They may come together eventually, but right now the market is pricing for an economic reality that is very different from what the Fed is pricing. And I'm not sure the quarter they did on Wednesday matters a whole lot because the market has almost entirely, completely, and totally ignored it. Look at that chart. And Jillian, I'll <laughs> let you respond, but we now have a chart of the Fed slash market gap. 1.2 points. I love that you put that together, Steve. Uh, Jillian, will you respond to that? Yeah, I would say that I agree with Steve in the sense that actually at the beginning of QE, I was supportive of QE. What has really concerned me, though, is the degree to which complacency about the interest rate outlook has become baked into so many investors' assumptions. And I think that the Fed could and should have spoken up much more about telling investors, telling the markets they need to prepare for much higher rates very explicitly. I mean, yes, they had the Fed dot plot and all of that. But I do think that it's time for the system, the investors, for endowments, for private equity, venture capitalists, banks, the entire system to wake up and realize that what's happened in the last 10 years is not normal. And this is the adjustment towards something which is slightly more sustainable. Yeah. It's brutal because it's happening so late. Steve, if, if, if Agreed. I, I mean, look, if, if, if I may, just, Steve, just real, real quickly, I just want to make one thing a very short, uh, Barry, on this. Sure. Nobody ever promised you the post Dodd-Frank world was going to be a rose garden, that banks weren't going to fail um, and that you wouldn't have a situation. We've had zero bank failures in the wake of the pandemic. Um, you could make an argument that supervision, except in the case of a couple banks, 
was not too shabby, that the capital levels are not too bad. You do not have an issue right now with the uh, uh, soundness of the collateral on the books of the banks. It's a maturity issue that's really at fault here. So I I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm hoping that this thing ends up contained. I don't know that's the case. But right now, let's not make more of it than it is. Bank failures but, happen, especially when regime changes happen. And that's where we are right now. Jillian, go ahead. Yeah, just Steve, I was going to say, I mean, I think part of the problem is that too many investors and too many regulators have been fighting the last war and focused on credit risk. I completely agree with you that actually there are big capital buffers against credit risks. Great. They're going to need it in the next couple of years as we go into a cycle where credit risk will become an issue. What people were not focusing on, though, was interest rate risk, because really since 1994, Agreed. there hasn't been a big interest rate shock. And it's everything from the fact Agreed. that under the Obama regime, government bonds are basically zero weighted on the books of banks, through to the fact that almost nobody stood up and talked openly about asset liability, duration matching, interest rate risk in the central banking community in a way that really right. laid out issues clearly. And that, to my mind, is part of the problem. We've been fighting the last war too much. Very quick last one. Yeah, no, I just had to say that Jillian somehow um, cornered me into being one of those easy money people, which I am the <laughs> farthest thing from, actually. 2021, uh, what I was trying to describe and part of what happened in 2021 was also uh, a, some big regulatory decisions. So, for example, Senate Democrats called the Fed, asked them to end the exemption for cash and Treasury securities from the supplementary leverage ratio. That meant big banks couldn't take deposits. Wells Fargo had an asset cap. They're the biggest small and medium business lender in California. I was never a fan of QE. I was highly critical of the 2021 actions, thought that the pandemic was an inflationary shock. So I want to kind of be on the record. I, Steve and <laughs> Kelly know that I'm like the farthest thing from an easy money Person, so. And Jill, we, before we let you go here and, and sort of turn our attention back to the U.S. specifically, what would you tell investors into the weekend to be on watch for and in the weeks to come? Oh, goodness me. Fridays are a bad day, aren't they, in banking? They really are. I mean, you know, we've been calling around like everyone else and asking people if they expect something to happen over the weekend. Um, we did, of course, have the German premier come out and say quite categorically that there is no reason to be concerned about Deutsche Bank. Um, the reality is that what's happening right now is a bit like a strong wind blowing a house that's got cracks in the foundations or got a leaky roof in a rainstorm. You know, everything seems fine until suddenly everyone starts scrutinizing where the potential, you know, wobbly bits of the financial system are. And Deutsche Bank has always been on people's radars. Mm -hmm. It's got you know, a lot of issues that are hard to understand around its derivatives books. And so I think part of what's happening is people are just scrutinizing the landscape and trying to work out where to panic next. Well said. Jillian, thank you so much for your time tonight. We appreciate it. Jillian Ted with the Financial Times. Steve, thank you as well. Our Steve Leisman, Barry, stick around. In Fed Chairman Powell's press conference earlier this week, he said it's too soon to tell how the banking stresses would affect the availability of credit in the U.S. economy. He did say it'd likely be a drag on consumer spending and economic growth. What should corporate America be doing right now? Let's ask Steve Odland. He's president and CEO of the Conference Board and a CNBC contributor. Steve, it's great to have you here because I would like to know what kind of conversations you're having right now, what that can tell us about what's really happening on the front lines of the economy. Well, look, despite what you think should happen with the Fed, the possibility is interest rates could go higher. Banks then have to mark the market either officially or unofficially, which means the credit out there will be less as banks become more conservative. That means that corporations also need to become conservative. 
I was running Office Depot during the financial crisis, sitting there happily at investment grade credit. The banks started going and you say, well, how's that going to impact me? Bam, credit dried up. You know, the rating agencies, you know, do things retroactively. Sometimes they do things without a lot of information. They downgraded whole sectors. And of course, credit dried up. People lost their, their funding. You saw, you know, hundreds of bankruptcies. The the CEOs of America today need to be looking at their balance sheets and becoming more conservative, raising cash, drawing down on their revolvers, because you don't know, right? And you can't take the risk because, it, you know, it, it could be a really bad risk if you run out of liquidity. And so that's the key thing here is that CEOs are looking at liquidity. They're looking at the possibility that the Fed could go even higher. They could go to 6%. Whether or not we think they should, it could happen and therefore companies need to buckle down and to batten the hatches on their balance sheets. And tactically speaking, Barry, where would you be sort of most interested in having exposure to what parts of the yeah, market so right now? A little bit of a spoiler here, alert here. My, the title of my weekly note is supply destruction, hmm. right? And the idea is, if you look at the small business sector, for example, and this is crucial, I think, the BLS birth death model estimation of small businesses is notorious for not catching turning points. They've estimated over the last, or since September, last five months, that small business employment's gone up by some 400,000 jobs, somewhat erratically. The newly constructed ADP survey has five consecutive months of contraction in small business employment. And the NFIB small business survey is showing a similar downward trajectory for small business employment. So if small business was already teetering, they tend to be financed more with floating rate debt as opposed to terming out through IG credit. Of course. And then you hit them with a credit supply shock, which we were already struggling with a little bit given the senior loan officer survey tightening lending standards. But clearly, you know, to the other guest's point, they, they are likely to see the supply of credit evaporate. So you go, okay, well, small business in, in general is going to be hit by this. Uh, business confidence impacting what was looking like, I think we could have a secular CapEx boom this mm -hmm. cycle as we re rebuild our capital stock. But business confidence is another hmm. negative so channel here. So maybe you don't see here. that anymore right. taking place? Um, I think that that's a real risk, yeah. right? And this is what I think the, the Fed is missing, missing. So we'll be looking every week at the weekly Fed H8 data to see what happens to of that course. credit creation episode. But there's a, there's a real serious risk here that I think you know, Rob Kaplan and Eric Rosengren both said it, which is, you know, trying to separate macro pro policy from monetary policy in a situation like this is an exercise in futility. You're supposed to focus on risk management. And that's where I think we've we've gone awry. So, Steve, quick last word to you. And, and this is why it's frustrating not to hear this some more sometimes from, for instance, Powell or the other Fed members who get up there. When you see Bullard go up today and say, no, I think rates have to go to 5.6 or, you know, and change by the end of this year now, do you think he's missing the macroeconomic reality that we're heading into? Well, you don't know. I mean, this is the thing. I agree on the small business side, but the, the, the final point is the consumer and the consumer confidence could come down dramatically. We're a consumer-driven economy, and that's really important. When the cost of debt goes up for the consumer, credit card debt, mortgage debt, when the cost of leasing and buying uh, cars goes up, you know, those purchases will come down. It'll hit GDP. You know, the Fed says here, we're not going to stop until we hit 2% inflation. Our forecast is that that's not going to happen until the end of 2024. I think we have a long way to go here. And then it's typically a year after that 
you know, they they hit their peak that, you know, before they start unwinding. So we're a long way away from, you know, having a peak impact here. And so back to consumers are will batten down the hatches, but CEOs need to get far more conservative and small businesses will be hurt here. Yeah. And we know the knock on effect that'll have. Thank you both. Steve Odlin and Barry, a pleasure. Thanks for joining us uh, yeah. today. Can, Great to be here. When are you moving back from Colorado, by the way? The <laughs> pandemic is over. You do know the tax structure in Colorado relative to New Jersey, right, Cal? (laughs) New Jersey needs your dollars. Uh, Coming up, will subprime auto loans be the new canary in the coal mine? We'll look at the fallout there from spiking rates and whether more subprime lenders could close their doors, plus what that means for the automakers themselves. And while Bitcoin prices are up lately, shares of Coinbase are down 10% this week after the SEC warned the company of potential securities charges. Will it bring a halt to crypto activity and drive out potential buyers? We'll ask a top VC. As we head to break, here's a look at markets. The Dow recovering from a 300-point loss. It's down 40 right now. The Nasdaq has also turned negative by half a percent. The 10-year yield at 336. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The delinquency rate for subprime auto loans has been on the rise since last year. Now bank troubles could further tighten credit conditions in the months to come. And my next guest says it's not just financing that's being impacted. The manufacturers themselves are already feeling the pain. The S&P auto component sector down over 6% since SVB's collapse on March 10th. Joining us now is Colin Langan. He's an equity analyst at Wells Fargo Securities. Colin, good to see you and connect some of these dots for us. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's really two factors here. One, there's a slight direct impact from the SVB situation. Um, the the FinCos of the auto companies are going to be under a bit of pressure. We've seen a more choppy ABS market, and that's a significant source of funding for them. There's also a risk that the cost of that funding may go up. I think the bigger piece is that you know the macro concerns here could drive you know lending spreads up a bit, and that that's going to put what's already, in my opinion, significant pressure with rising interest rates, we're already going to see more pressure on new vehicle pricing. I mean, customers shop for their payment. And with higher rates, and now maybe even higher rates because we're taking a higher risk spread, that means a lot of pricing pressure on the auto companies. That's been a huge driver over the last three years. I think if you look at the walks, it's like $17 billion of help uh, since COVID. Uh, and some of that, I think, will start to unwind uh, as we go through the year. And, I mean, you're not sort of pulling any punches here. You've got an underweight on both Ford and GM. So you've kind of described the characteristics that have you worried 
about autos a little bit more broadly. But what is it in particular you think that's going to be a catalyst here for these stocks? And again, you know, we've already seen Ford. They have, you know, a lot of expenses as they're trying to ramp up their EVs and, and all the rest of it. How much more of a headwind will this be? I think there's, unfortunately, for the automakers, a lot of negative catalysts this year. I think pricing is going to unwind. I think that's very likely. I mean, we've never had a supply situation like we've been in before, but I think as supply recovers, which probably happens in Q2, uh, pricing will start to to normalize. And we've already seen some signs on the edges that pricing and incentives are starting to creep up. I think that's clearly the biggest near-term headwind. But just this morning, we did an update on the UAW contract that'll be coming up in September. Labor inflation is huge across the country. Uh, We're expecting, I think, as a baseline, a 10% wage increase. So uh, that's pretty meaningful. That could be a billion dollars in added costs for both GM and Ford into next year. So it's something that I don't think investors are paying enough attention to. I also think that contract is going to be very contentious, very high chance of a strike risk. We saw that in 2019. Uh, When you're looking for pretty big wage increases, you have very likely new leadership at the UAW, uh, very likely chance that we're going to have some form of strikes uh, in the fall. Another pretty significantly negative catalyst for the group. And then on top of that, I think on a long-term basis, you mentioned electric vehicles. I think the economics there are very, very challenging. I mean, even just yesterday, Ford was talking about how they're losing, uh, they have a negative contribution today. Uh, they expect it to be break even by the end of the year, but it's pretty negative when you're, every car you sell is losing a bit of money. Yeah, no, and it's for those of us who remember um, kind of that period in 2005 where, you know, when we talk about CDS, remember when it was Ford and GM? And it was like, I never like to say, and the market has this memory where it says these events may have nothing to do with each other. They're totally different companies now. And yet you just don't like to see these two major automakers going through any period of financial tightening. So all of that said, uh, you are overweight on names like Borg Warner, for instance. Where do you still still see opportunity, and and why don't you think necessarily this year will be as bad as what we went through uh, in the financial crisis? Yeah, I mean, I think from a, where I do see opportunity is I actually think pricing comes down quite significantly, but I also think volume comes up. There are a lot of people who have been waiting because there is pent up demand, right? We haven't been able to, to deliver cars, uh, so we never really had any re- full recovery post-COVID in the auto sector. And that's great news for the auto suppliers. So that's why we like Bork Warner. I think it's a compelling valuation, a great long-term story as they're actually becoming an e-powertrain leader, uh, and that's going to be a growth opportunity for them. And you know, just like all the suppliers, if production is up, their their sales are going to be up. So that's going to be a key driver. That's a great point. And that would certainly be a much more encouraging landscape, even if it's a headwind uh, for some of the, the, make, the automakers themselves. Colin, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Colin Langan. Coming up, autos aren't the only group being affected by the banking turmoil. Clean energy getting a lot of scrutiny as well. They could face a credit crunch, but our guest has some names he thinks are a buying opportunity here for the long run. As we head to break, let's also take a look at the sector heat map. About evenly split today. With lower rates, we do have utilities and staples leading the way. Consumer discretionary and financials both down about almost 1%. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. And welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update at half past the hour. President Biden and the Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau have begun their one-day summit in Ottawa, along with the formal announcement of a new agreement designed to prevent migrants from crossing the border between the U.S. and Canada. The two will talk about international efforts to stabilize Haiti. The man who inspired the movie Hotel Rwanda will be released from prison tomorrow. Heading to the United States, Paul Rusi Sabagina was celebrated for sheltering more than a thousand ethnic Tutsis in the hotel he managed during Rwanda's 1994 genocide. But years later, he was convicted of terrorism offenses in a widely criticized trial. Washington has been pushing for his release, and today Rwanda's president commuted his 25-year sentence. And after several months as a, a crypto fugitive, the entrepreneur Do Kwan is in custody in Montenegro and charged with forging official documents. Authorities say he was arrested with fake identification while trying to board a flight to Dubai. The uh, Terraform Labs co-founder also faces fraud charges in his native South Korea and in the United States after his Terra and Luna tokens crashed, erasing an estimated $40 billion. And Kelly, I don't want to let the moment go without saying thank you to our producer, Alex Crippen, who has been writing these wonderful news updates for me and others uh, for many, many years. There's nothing Alex hasn't done, literally, at CNBC. Congratulations, Alex, as you sail on. He's Kelly, wonderful. back to you. I'll just add to Patty Dom as well, who has personally helped me out so much over the year. We're going back and forth on macro all the time. Uh, Patty, Absolutely. you will be very missed as well. Tyler, Two superstars absolutely. sailing on. Yes. What do we say? Bon voyage. Bon voyage. <laughs> I'll see you soon, Tyler. Thanks. Still ahead, Bitcoin has surged 40% since SVB's collapse. So if it was born during the last financial crisis, is this the one where it comes of age? My next guest thinks so and joins me to explain. Welcome back to The Exchange. Bitcoin has been one of the few bright spots amid the banking turmoil, with prices up 40% since the collapse of SVB just a couple of weeks ago. But then this week, the SEC issued Coinbase with the Wells notice, warning of potential securities charges on the horizon. Its shares are down about 11% this week, but Coinbase, Coinbase fired back, saying it's confident in the legality of its assets and services. Will DC's crackdown chill activity across the crypto space? Joining me now is Chris Berniski. He's partner at Placeholder, a VC firm specializing in crypto assets. Assets, former head of ARK Invest Crypto Department, as we were just reminiscing uh, about somewhat. Uh, Chris, welcome. Thanks, Kelly. So the concern, I mean, there's a lot of concern mm -hmm. about how much more there is to come from D.C. And if I were someone tangentially involved in the space, wouldn't I maybe think twice about it just to be super safe about not crossing with an area? I mean, look at TikTok, that the government may be mm -hmm. signaling a further crackdown mm -hmm. on. I would actually take the opposite approach of the size of the fight here is indicative of the scale of the opportunity hmm. and what's at stake. And, you know, I've been in the crypto industry for about 10 years now. No one cared about us in the beginning. You know, they laughed at us, they ridiculed us. And then here we are on the biggest stages, you know, in the midst of a banking crisis. 
I also think it's... So you're, in other words, saying we've gone first, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then exactly. they fight you. And, you and then, think, you know, then what you happens win. after they fight you, you <laughs> yeah. win. Exactly. Um, and, and I'd say that's where our belief is. And the timing is a little too coincidental. You know, at the same time that you have government officials saying, hey, don't, don't panic about the traditional system. They're saying, hey, do panic about crypto. Don't look over here. Um, but Bitcoin was built for moments like this. It's, a, it's an alternative to the existing system. Ethereum as well operates an internet native financial system. And these are means for consumers to make a different choice or at the very least diversify. There's no solvency risk. There's algorithmic supply. Um, it's not going to be caught up in the same contagion we see right now in the traditional system. And so that's valuable for consumers to be educated about. So, so people are saying if, if the government, for instance, cracks down on staking or, or that kind of behavior, the yield farming kind of behavior, which they've, they've kind of been going at this from the edges mm -hmm. first, maybe moving towards the middle, that that would undermine a significant uh, portion of Coinbase's revenues and probably some would argue um, threatens the, the crypto ecosystem as well. Do you share those concerns? Do you think that they, that is potentially an area that we're going to see more regulatory pressure? So I would differentiate between the protocols and the companies that operate on top of the protocols. So Coinbase is a company that provides services on top of these protocols. Um, Coinbase is not changing their operations, right? Their stance is, our business hasn't changed. You approved us in the IPO in 2021. Um, you've been inconsistent in this process. And so I think that Coinbase will take this to the courts um, and potentially the highest courts. We see similar action from Grayscale, you know, suing the SEC for it for inconsistency as well. And so these companies, they do have to deal with the costs and you know, say some of the complications of that process. And so that's important for investors to be aware of. At the same time though, you have Bitcoin chugging along, Ethereum chugging along. Basically, these protocols don't care, mm -hmm. right? Um, last year combined, they settled over $20 trillion in value. Um, Bitcoin is, uh, you know, you've got an all-time high of holders right now where um, 68% of holders have not sold or moved their Bitcoin for over a year. So you have these people who aren't flinching in, in, in spite of all this regulatory pressure. And in fact, I would say, as we see since the SVB collapse, they're shifting even more into, into Bitcoin. And so this is where I think you'll see the strategy from the government ultimately backfire. So if I were somebody concerned that the, the activity in crypto is, is not going to be as high going forward as it was. Mm -hmm. And that has ramifications across all of the startups that were hoping, you know, that this would be their moment. You know, it, it's interesting to me that, that Bitcoin and, if you're correct, uh, Ether itself are holding up okay. But what's going to happen to a lot of the companies that were part of the crypto ecosystem? Mm -hmm. I mean, do their economics actually make sense in a higher rate? environment um, with less startup capital where, mm -hmm. you know, extended losses aren't something that people can just, you know, where are the ones that you sure. think are, are profitable enough on their own without some of these other practices to exist for the next 5, 10, 15 years? Yeah. Well, I would say startups in large are all facing the same pressures, right? Um, I, I run a venture capital firm, placeholder. Um, and so, you know, we're dealing uh, with a situation where, you know, monetary conditions are tighter, capital is more scarce. And so everyone is working through that. Um, but then if, if you look at Ethereum, for example, this internet financial system that is built on top of Ethereum, those again are not companies. They're, they're protocols or they're smart contract systems that operate on top of Ethereum. When a consumer wants to take out a loan or make a trade or uh, say invest in a yield bearing position, they're doing that by directly calling the Ethereum blockchain and executing a transaction therein that's not executed by a company. Right. And so that smart contract 
doesn't have a PL. It's not going to go bankrupt. It's there immutably forever within the Ethereum blockchain. And so it's going to operate that service regardless of what the economic situation but is. But as a VC, then, how are you making a return? Is it on companies themselves that are part of this ecosystem mm -hmm. or is it on the, the ecosystem itself? So we, we focus on you know, core assets like Bitcoin, Ether, Solana, Cosmos. And so um, core positions in some of those major liquid assets, which we think of as like the Amazons or the Microsofts and getting to buy those positions in the early 2000s after the, the tech and telecom bust. So that's one part. And then with, on top of those core positions, we make venture investments, um, primarily in the protocols capitalized by crypto assets. And so even though we are a traditional VC firm, we focus far less on companies than mm -hmm. your standard VCs. And would. do you think this will all survive the next couple Definitely. of years? I, I, like, if anything, I have more conviction than I've ever had um, because traditional finance and traditional government, speak uh, traditional government speakers are advertising for us right now, right? And as they, they raise these questions about the traditional system and people ask, why is that happening? They tend to end up at, at these crypto systems and say, hey, this is a viable alternative. How then would you explain Bitcoin's collapse from the, you know, prior to the Fed's mm -hmm. tightening to where we are today? Even with the rebound, it's still down significantly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when arguably the opposite should be true based on the conditions that you're describing. So why should... Why is that the case? Yep. You know, and, and why won't it end up being that if we see more crackdown and, for instance, the leverage that's part of the Bitcoin ecosystem, that that price won't come under further pressure? Yeah. So when I started at ARK Invest and when ARK first built this position, Bitcoin was at $200, right, for, for where we began in, in 2015, at least at ARK. Uh, and so here we are, you know, north of $20,000, up 40% since SVB, almost 2x on the year. That said, it's still an emerging asset. It's still venture risk. Um, and so it does have these boom-bust cycles. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, I think of Bitcoin more as a supply inflation hedge than a price inflation hedge. And so as you see liquidity drain from the traditional system or slosh into the system, you see Bitcoin react. Even right? though it's infinitely divisible. Infinitely divisible, but algorithmic in its supply, inflating 2% a year. Right, right now, and we all know there's only ever going to be 21 million BTC. So in terms of a store of value, you've never had a more perfect supply schedule than what BTC offers. Final comment, let's say you're testifying in front of Congress and the congressman get up there and say, Chris, this is all well and good, but why do we need this to mm -hmm. exist? What is the fundamental purpose that it's going to serve in, in the kind of less risky U.S. economy? What Certainly. would you say? Well, I would say the U.S. was founded on the principles of freedom and innovation, and those are things that crypto stands for. And blockchains are this transparent auto accounting uh, system that I would say ultimately creates a better substrate for us to run finance and to run our digital economies on. But they might say that's fine, but, but Charlie Munger's easier to understand. And he says, you know, this is garbage and, it and that we should have gone the way of China and outlawed it from the beginning. And you're not convincing us. Mm -hmm. Well, it's going to be my generation and the generations beneath me and our generation that defines the future more than it's going to be Charlie Munger. Chris Berniski, a defiant bull. Thank you so much <laughs> Thanks, for joining Kelly. me today. I appreciate it. Still ahead, mega cap tech stocks also on the run again, leading to some outsized index and sector weightings. Just how big names like Apple and Microsoft have gotten and what happens historically after companies reach that size? That's next.
Welcome back, everybody. The FANG Plus Index is up over 33% just this year on pace for its best quarter since the second quarter of 2020 when the pandemic began. Deirdre Bosa is here now to discuss about how concentrated this tech rally has become, Deirdre, and Apple and Microsoft in particular. In particular, and we've really seen this divergence even within FANG. But first, of course, we've talked about the safe haven that tech stocks have become over the last few weeks. I want to show you this chart because it really is remarkable and tells you how the mega caps have really led the rally over the last few weeks. You've got Meta, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Google up 19% without those names. You see the S&P 500, it's actually completely flat. So you can see that big tech is making up for that. Um, And also to your point, Kelly, yes, Apple and Microsoft have never been more concentrated and have a greater weighting in the S&P 500 than at this point in time. And they're really seen as the fortresses within the safe haven because of their balance sheets. Their balance sheets, Deirdre, are probably the most reassuring thing to people right now, although. Did we ever look and see what portion of those were in treasuries and, and MBS or you know all the rest of it? Um, but it also, you go back and say, okay, well, when we had in, Intel and other companies uh, that were huge portion, IBM, of the yeah. index. You know, exactly, exactly. I mean, that, yeah, I don't know. You never really want to be, want to be buying yeah. at the top. It's kind of like a cursed position to be in, right? Because yeah. there's nowhere else to go but down. But it is kind of remarkable. When we look at the FANG, the FANG Plus um, names, they were, I think, 25% of the index at their peak. They're now 21%. So they've held, you know, relatively steady. But what happens next? We know that um, potentially they can't hold on forever. But that's why you see them spending and splashing out Microsoft, for example, with its AI, also Meta. Um, but to your point of balance sheets, yeah, I mean, Apple has what, well over $100 billion in terms of cash and cash reserves, and it can basically act as its own bank, right? Do things like buy now, pay later, which was thought of as disruptive by some of the fintechs. So this is really, you know, an indication of how safe these companies are. Absolutely. Dear Jabosa, thank you. We appreciate it. Still ahead, despite today's dip, crude and natural gas, they're actually higher for the week. But this alt-energy ETF is still outshining them. We'll tell you what's pushing it higher. Plus, when analysts seeing red flags for green energy from here after SBB's collapse, we have that next on The Exchange. Welcome back. TAN, the Invesco Solar ETF, that was our mystery chart in the tease. It's up more than 4% so far this week. Pippa Stevens has a look at what's driving those gains. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Kelly. Well, solar stocks are in the green this week as investors bet the selling, prompted by the banking fallout, might have been overdone. Remember, the TAN ETF is coming off its worst week of the year. Now, first, taking a look at the headwinds. Silicon Valley Bank, of course, was a key lender to climate companies, working with more than 1,500 names across the industry. While publicly traded companies had little exposure, there are now broader fears around shortfalls in project financing. The rising cost of capital is also weighing on the sector. However, Raymond James noted these fears are misplaced since banks continue to have a strong appetite for climate projects. They help with ESG scores and they can also offer predictive cash flows for things like power purchase agreements that are locked in ahead of time. Now on the positive side, we got indication this week that the market is still open. Residential solar loan provider Mosaic priced an asset-backed offering yesterday on terms that Guggenheim said were more favorable than many had expected. The retreat in the 10-year yields also, Kelly, helping with some of those rising cost of capital concerns. 
Come on over, Pippa. We're going to stay on this because while all energy stocks saw gains this week, my next guest says there are a few warning signs flashing for the industry after the SVB collapse. Stephen Bird is here. He's an equity analyst at Morgan Stanley. Stephen, it's good to see you. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And, you know, the reason why we all are a little bit cautious on new energy is because of the yield co-type companies, which are exactly the ones that you're saying, look, this is not where you'd be going right now. A Nextera often comes up, a Clearaway Energy, for instance, a few of those other players. So why do you think these see most uh, vulnerability in the market and where do you think people should be looking instead? Yeah, you know, Yilco's the fundamental business model is driven by buying an asset at a certain yield and then financing that asset at a significantly lower yield. And so we're looking essentially at that spread and uh, that's really driving the valuation. It's driving even the dividend growth for those companies. The concern that's fairly obvious is the cost of financing is quite uncertain right now. If the cost rises, we're really not sure that they'll be able to maintain that spread, which is so critical, not just to the yield today, but to the growth tomorrow. So companies like that are, that are essentially centralized around the cost of financing concern us more than, say, companies that are really developing projects building projects or manufacturers that have a lot less exposure to financing uh, at all. Okay, really good explanation. And that's why we can see this characteristic pop up in different industries, uh, but here especially where people might be trying to take advantage of that spread. So where do you think conditions, financial conditions especially, look a little more favorable? You know, for uh, some companies that just have very little financing needs, those are the simplest. A few equipment makers in the clean energy world that are in really good shape. An example would be Bloom Energy. They are well-financed. It's a relatively capital-like fuel cell model. This is also, we think, a year that they're going to be really breakout in terms of significant EBITDA, so very exciting minimal financing requirements. And then we think about really big finance companies, uh, development companies like Sunrun and Nextera, the parent, interestingly enough, uh, AES, these are companies that are very big, they have better pricing power, they have excellent access to capital, they often have a large number of banks uh, in their syndicates, and those companies we think are going to be well set in terms of both raising capital, and you raised a good point about the data point this week on financing, and also when we think about pricing power, many of these companies do have quite a bit of uh, pricing power. Right. An example of that dynamic would be Sunrun in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sunrun will go to a homeowner and will show the pricing of their product compared to the utility bill. In Northern California, the utility bill is above 30 cents a kilowatt hour. Sunrun's pricing is around 20 cents a kilowatt hour, and that's with no capital upfront to consumers. So unlike many products, this is truly a deflationary product. Sunrun does have the ability to increase their pricing if necessary, if their financing costs were to rise. And you talk about those rooftop, residential rooftop installers, and while they are certainly the leaders, it is still very much a fragmented market. So I guess in terms of the lasting impacts of the fallout from SVB, do you think we'll see more consolidation from those smaller companies that might not be able to access the debt market? I think that's an excellent point. We are concerned about the smaller players and their access to capital. As you pointed out rightly, Silicon Valley Bank has been involved in finance often to these small developers. So this could result in consolidation. I think that just speaks to the strength of the larger business models. Those business models also have a number of operational and finance efficiencies that the smaller players just don't have. So yes, I would expect to see some consolidation. And final word, Stephen, what, what happens? So we see and now the 10-year yield is actually dropping. If the Fed actually starts cutting rates by the end of the year, what, what then? 
Yeah, what that might mean, we've been thinking a lot about that recent data points, and who knows where it goes from here, of course, but data points indicate that the credit spread essentially is serving to offset the drop in yield. Uh, I would expect that dynamic to stick around in clean energy finance. That said, the quality of the underlying assets is extremely good. The performance of these assets financially, operationally, has been really quite good. So I, I do agree with the earlier point that there is enduring interest in providing capital to the sector. The sector projects are still quite high quality. Uh, whether the cost of capital falls, I don't know. But frankly, at this point, given the fall last week, investors have been much more concerned about a dramatic increase in financing. Right. So I would be quite happy if the cost of financing stayed relatively flat. That would be, at this point, a victory, and we'd see a lot of upside in our stocks. Right, or perhaps we, you know, by the time we actually get rate cuts, their cost of financing is so much higher anyway for secular reasons that off we go. Uh, it's great to have you here today, Stephen. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Stephen Bird and our Pippa Stevens. Pippa, a pleasure. That does it for the exchange today, everybody. But for more on the markets, the economy, you can sign up for my newsletter in one easy step, cnbc.com slash newsletters or scan that QR code. Power Lunch is up next. And there's Tyler getting ready. He's, he's wearing green. Will we be green by 4 p.m.? I'll join him on the other side of this quick break. <laughs> You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.